invite you to take your Bible and turn first with me to Genesis chapter 18, Genesis 18, and then we'll go to Hebrews chapter 13 as we continue our series in that wonderful letter, Hebrews 13. First, Genesis 18, and then Hebrews 13. In Hebrews 13, the writer uh, reminds his readers that um, someone at, uh, in the past entertained angels unaware, and he's referencing Genesis chapter 18, and so I thought it'd be helpful if we just read that story. And so we'll read the first eight verses of chapter 18 in the book of Genesis. Let's give our attention to God's word this morning. And the Lord appeared to him, that is Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah, and said, Quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and then he stood by them under the tree while they ate. And these uh, uh, angels and the Lord then are going to tell him Sarah is going to have a baby next year. And also the Lord then reveals to him what's going to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's turn then to Hebrews chapter 13. And we're going to read the first three verses of chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, And those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. So far, the reading of God's word. Let's ask his blessing on it. Well, God in heaven, we trust that you have good food for us today. I pray you would give us, uh, Lord, hungry hearts and and ears to hear it and uh, to to see the goodness of God and the wonder of Jesus in it. Uh, Lord, I thank you that you speak to us today um, as, as clearly and prominently as, Lord, my voice is being heard right now. And I pray that um, we would, Lord, hear it and respond in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of my message this morning is, What Faith Does. What Faith Does. It's interesting that when it comes to certain things, uh, their identity isn't really revealed in their name or their appearance, but in their function. I remember as a boy uh, uh, walking around uh, auction sales, farm auctions with my father, and, and we'd uh, come across some old machinery, maybe something that was once used uh, by, uh, when they were pulling by horses, and, and we would say, what, what is that? And he would, give, he would tell us the name, but it didn't really it didn't tell us anything. And so we would say, what does it do? And uh, once he explained what it did, well, then we understood what it was, uh, its identity was revealed by its function. Well, um, have you ever 
ask the question, or just consider the question, what does faith do? What does it do? Uh, the writer in uh, this letter has been talking a lot about faith. He's spent the first uh, 10 chapters for sure um, talking about the object of our faith. He's writing to people who are struggling, they're suffering, uh, they're being persecuted, and he uh, reminds them, these are, these are uh, people who come out of the Jewish faith, and he reminds them of the, the vast superiority of belonging to Jesus uh, instead of belonging to Moses. Jesus is the greater Moses, mediates a greater covenant. Uh, Jesus is a greater high priest. He offers a greater sacrifice. Uh, everything about the Old Testament, in a sense, said, stay away, don't come near to God. Jesus says the exact opposite, draw near into the most holy place with full assurance and confidence that we have access to a throne of grace because of Jesus. So he's talked about the object of faith. He's talked about the nature of faith. Chapter 11 was, in a sense, devoted to that, it, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not yet seen. He's talked about the desire, uh, the necessity of faith. Verse 6 of chapter 11. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. That means without a living, genuine faith in Jesus Christ, it is impossible to please God. He's talked about the desire of faith. That those who believe are looking for a better country. They desire a better country, he says in verse 16, a heavenly one. And he's talked about the great power of faith, verses 32 to 34. So he's talking about faith, but what, is, what does faith do? What does it look like in, in action? And that's what we come to here in chapter 13. He's going to uh, close out this letter by, by calling uh, his readers and calling you and, and, and me to to do the things that, that faith does, to manifest that we have this faith by living a certain way. Uh, the main point of our text this morning is that Christian faith, the faith that can be rightly called Christian, is a faith that stands on everything that's come prior in the book. So it, it's a faith that lays hold of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished and all that he's promised it's a faith that lays hold of all of that and then necessarily loves. That's the point of chapter 13, that uh, the faith that lays hold of Jesus must and will express itself in love for one another. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, you have a, maybe an outline that was handed out, in, uh, looking first of all at the reminder, then the recipient's and uh, let's, let's begin with uh, the reminder. Let brotherly love continue. Such a little phrase, uh, we can easily just pass by it, and yet it's so critically important and so relevant, so practical. Uh, if I asked you this week, how well did you love? Uh, my guess would be that many of us said just simply did not consider that question this week. Uh, so if I asked, how did you do that? Or how, how's your week been? How many of us would stop and just uh, put it through the filter, the category of, how well did I love this week? How well did I love the Lord my God with all my heart and soul? And how well did I love my neighbor as myself? But that's what he's talking about. Let brotherly love continue. And the word continue matters here because uh, this, is a, this is a group of people who uh, had at one point in their 
faith experience, they had loved each other magnificently. When they had first come to the faith and persecution had first happened, we read in chapter 10 that they, uh, they joyfully embraced that together and they cared for each other in profound ways, sharing their possessions, living as a true family of God. But, but years had passed and, and that original fire of love had sort of diminished. It's, it's waned. And that can easily happen in a church. Christian love doesn't happen all by itself. It doesn't happen just by showing up to church. It's something that has to be pursued. And, and if it's not pursued, it easily uh, fades away. Remember Jesus' words in Revelation chapter 3, he's talking, 2, excuse me, where he's speaking to the church in Ephesus. In fact, why don't you turn there? Just, just go to Revelation. It's right just a few pages over in your Bible. Revelation chapter 2. And let's just see again Jesus' words to this church, a, a really fine church in Ephesus, planted by Paul, pastored by Timothy. Revelation chapter 2, this is probably about uh, 90, 95, and so the church has been there maybe um, 50 years, and so uh, let's see what's happened in the church in Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So this is a wonderful orthodox church concerned about gospel truth, and they are enduring uh, verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. They're committed to the faith. This is a great church. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And Jesus will go on and say that if they don't repent, that he's going to remove the lampstand from them. Uh, that's a big deal. I gave you the wrong text there, didn't I? No, I didn't. Very good. Um, so verse, verse 5. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Here's this great Orthodox church. This, this, this enduring church. This patient church. This church that's willing to, to, to hold on, to slug it out in a world that hates them. They're in pagan Ephesus. And yet Jesus points to the, the, uh, the one thing that is an incredibly critical thing. And you see, you find that message throughout the Bible that faith, even great faith, is, is not pleasing to God if it's not a faith that bears the fruit of love. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, right, if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. He says again in Galatians 5 verse 6, the only thing that counts, that's a big statement, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. That's what Barnabas is talking about. That's exactly what he wants them and us to remember. That, that uh, faith and love are inseparably linked as a summary definition of the Christian faith. That you're not a real, right? That the reality of your Christianity is not just what you believe, but what is that faith actually doing? 
What impact is it having? Is it, is it moving you in the paths of love? You see, faith, if it's true faith, will unite you to Jesus Christ. And, and yet that union must flow into the reality of the way you do life, if it's the real thing. You can't be united to Jesus Christ and dead. You can't be united to Jesus Christ and not have his character, his, his, uh, his desire, his passion, his interest working itself into, into the reality of how you actually live out your life. We know by, uh, by love who the children of God actually are. So John will say this. In fact, you're going to be real close there too. Just go to 1 John. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. Notice verse 10. John says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. And those are the only two options. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. God's kids are manifested not simply by what they profess to believe, they're manifested by how they love. Now, as I was studying this and thinking about this, it just struck me that I think growing up um, somewhere in the dark, deep recesses of, of uh, you know, my conservative, reformed conscience, where doctrine is, was king, um, talk about love sound a little suspicious. If, if, if you'd make a big deal out of love, it sounded a little sentimental, it sounded a little soft, maybe even a little liberal. The liberals were talking about loving people, and we just need to love. And the Beatles were singing, right? All we need is love, and, and that, so that put it way over the edge. <clears throat> It just, sounds, it just sounds a little soft. I mean, can we, could we, can we really receive this as, you know, sturdy, reformed stock? Uh, well, we better. We had better. Because the Bible says that the man who does not love is evidencing that he is not of God. And remember, there are two options. Spiritually speaking, you're a child of God or you're a child of the devil and, and the man who does not love his brother from his heart, no matter what he says he believes, John will say he's a liar. The truth is not in him. So this really, really, really matters. Let brotherly love continue is critically important. Well, what kind of love are we talking about? Barnabas tells us, uh, he moves on to, to talk about intentionally reaching out, loving, caring for brothers and sisters in Christ who are in uh, specific need. And so let's look secondly at the recipients. Verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to, to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Uh, the Greek word for hospitality, as some of you might know, is made up of really two words, Love for strangers. Uh, that's what it's about, love, loving strangers. It's interesting to note in the Scripture that one of the first things that comes to the minds of the apostles when they're talking about brotherly love, 
the top of the list is hospitality. You see it here in Hebrews 13. You see the same thing in 1 Peter 4, 8, where Peter says in verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. I mean, really making efforts at it. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So love each other earnestly. Show hospitality is the first thing on the list. Well, <clears throat> why, would, why would this be such a big deal to the apostles? And the answer is because it was a real need in uh, the world of that day. You see, in, in the world of that day, there are no hotels. There's, there are no restaurants, per se, uh, particularly as you get out and traveling through the country. Uh, there, are, there's, there are no nursing homes. There, there aren't homes for disabled folk. Uh, hospitality is an essential way of doing life where you in welcome strangers into your home. It's, it's normal way of doing life. The, the unique Christian wrinkle is that we're to do it without grumbling and intentionally. You see, the, um, the hospitality that's of particular concern is for brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they need a place to stay, and they need, a, they need food to eat. They need to be cared for in tangible ways. One uh, sort of stranger who would need that hospitality would be a traveling missionary, a traveling preacher. Remember, the early church is a sending church, and they're sending men out into the, 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 uh, the pagan world of their day. Uh, you, I want you to head, you go to Philippi, or you, you head over to, to, to Ephesus or Colossae or whatever it might be, and, um, and th so they would travel into foreign, enemy territory in a sense. Well, who's going to care for them? Well, brothers and sisters along the way uh, are required to care for them. Uh, you see that uh, in three, uh, John's third letter, again, we're right there. It's great these texts are so close together. Go to John, third John, John's third letter. And you see a, an example of this, exactly this sort of hospitality by a man named Gaius. That's, this is a letter written to Gaius. Verse one, to the, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. And then look at verse five. He says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So this is a one way that the, that the church as a whole uh, becomes fellow workers for the gospel mission as they're giving hospitality to traveling preachers. Another sort of stranger in need of hospitality would be a family on the move because of persecution or maybe a new believer who's been expelled from their family and from their community because they came to faith. And that would be particularly true in the Jewish world. And so you see this, this, um, this ministry of hospitality is critically important and a really significant sign of your faith. How, uh, how could you actually call yourself a Christian if uh, you know, a, a, a young family shows up on the move because of persecution or, or a new believer comes to the door needing, needing refuge and help and you, uh, you refuse to serve them? You refuse to, to care for them? Sorry, we're too busy. No room in the schedule. Uh, not enough room in the house. 
Uh, we don't have anything in the refrigerator. Bam. Thank you, Lord, for all the blessings that you've given to us today. Can you imagine how offensive that would be to God? To give thanks to God for all the blessings you have of your home and your health and, and, uh, and the things that he's provided to you and, and no concern for, for this person standing outside your door? This is, a, this is a big deal. And this idea of persecution, you see, is uh, evidently on Barnabas's mind if he's the author here, but it's evident in the next two verses where he immediately talks about those who are in prison, verse 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. So hospitality isn't just using your home to bless these traveling uh, folk, but it's being on the lookout for brothers and sisters who are maybe just nearby but in need. So you've heard so-and-so was, has been imprisoned because of the faith. And prisons in those days don't provide meals. They don't provide medicine. They don't provide clothing. They don't provide sheets and pillows. So who's going to do that? Well, family is, has to do that. Well, what if you've been expelled from your family? Well, welcome to the family of God, where you have brothers and sisters in Christ who are going to care particularly for you. Paul was the recipient of just such a ministry. He writes about it in 2 Timothy chapter 1, where he says, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. So Onesiphorus was a man who was intentionally looking for the Apostle Paul because he heard he was in prison and he went and he didn't stop until he found him and then took care of him. And Paul gives thanks to God for it. Now, why would we go about this sort of a ministry? Notice the reasons. Third point. Since you are also in the body. It's a wonderful reminder. Why should I go out of my way to love strangers, people I don't know? Do any of you just feel um, sort of awkward with, with strangers? You're not good at small talk. You, you forget things. Uh, you, you don't really know how to engage, and so you just sort of avoid it. What's going to move you through those barriers <clears throat> to love strangers? Well, um, the writer here says, uh, because they're your family. They're, they're your family. You see, this is brotherly love. We have a common father. We belong to the same family. We're the household of God, the, 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 the family of Jesus Christ, with one another and with all other believers all around the world. And the body is designed to care for itself. So if you, if you wound your thumb, uh, the rest of your body springs into action. You, you grab something and you, uh, you bandage it. Your, your blood cells are bringing the necessary uh, equipment to start working and bringing healing. You maybe take some aspirin to, to help with the pain. The, the body's paying attention and ministering to that hurting member. And that's exactly how it ought to be in the church. And when there's a hurting member in the body, the, the body springs into action. When there's a part of the body in need, the body as a whole springs into action. It's what the body does. And for a body, you see, for, for some part of the body to say, well, I'm just not interested in that. I don't have time for that. That, that part doesn't realize it's, it's part of a body. What if the blood would just say, I, I am sick and tired of running up to the thumb every other week because, you know, the guy can't keep the hammer off it. Well, 
that's a, that's a, that's a real dysfunction in the body. That's a disease. If, if your blood isn't able or willing to bring care to that, that necessary part, that, that hurting part. And exactly the same way in the church. When, when, when we're just right, too busy to care, too uh, concerned about our things to, to minister, it's a, it's a disease in the body. It's a dysfunction in the body. Something's gone, something's gone really wrong. If there's not brotherly love, there's, a, there's a, a disease that will prove to be fatal unless it's treated, unless it's taken care of. And so the, the first reason he gives is that we care for each other because we're all in the family. Secondly, and here's a reason that we, we don't want to miss, back in verse 2, he says, by so doing, showing this brotherly love and hospitality to strangers, some have entertained angels unawares. He's reminding them of Genesis 18. Genesis 19, you have a similar story where Lot receives two angels from God. He just, they're just men to him, but he receives them into the home. Um, why would Barnabas remind them of that story? So how is that going to motivate you to, to, to show hospitality to strangers? Is it because you think, I mean, maybe this person's an angel. That would be cool. Have an angel at the dinner table. Boys and girls, wouldn't that be cool? I don't, I don't think that's the motivation. At least it doesn't really work for me. Maybe, maybe it does for you. I don't, I don't think that's the motivation at all. You see, the, the truth is, it's way better than that. You don't get the faint hope that possibly maybe angels will show up. What you actually have, when we love each other this way and show hospitality to strangers, we have the confidence that Jesus is there. And that by ministering, to, um, to, to our brothers and sisters in need, we're ministering to Jesus. How do we know that? Well, we know that from Matthew chapter 25. And I would just ask you to turn to Matthew 25 for uh, one, more, one more time here. Let's go to Matthew 25. And you, and, and you maybe know these words. It's, it's easy to forget uh, the, the wonder of them. Matthew chapter 25, uh, verse 31, Jesus is talking about uh, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all His angels with Him, the last day, the judgment day. And He will gather the nations, verse 32. He will separate people from one another as a shepherd separate, separates the sheep from the goats. That's what's going to happen on the last day. And the sheep, in verse 33, go on the right. The goats go on the left. Verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What an amazing thing to hear. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see uh, you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You see, it's way better than having angels show up. We serve, Jesus the King says, as we serve one another and love one another and care for each other, we are serving him. 
loving him, caring for him. If, if, if I would ask you, um, would you like to know a surefire way to delight the heart of Jesus this week? Would that be of interest to you? Uh, something that you knew he took great joy and pleasure in. Hopefully you'd say, yeah, I'd like to know what that is. And, and the text tells us what it is. Care for each other. Love each other. Care particularly for brothers and sisters who are in great need. Well, let's apply this. What does this mean for you and me here at Harvest Church? I think um, the first and foremost thing that comes directly, I think, from Scripture is that we, friends, we have a responsibility to intentionally, sacrificially love our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. The word hospitality has had some semantic uh, shifting. And so that hospitality for us uh, so often means having people over to their house. It's a wonderful thing. Please do it more and more. Uh, that's fellowship. That's not specifically what the Bible calls hospitality. What specifically the Bible calls hospitality is what we see here in Hebrews chapter 13. It's a love for strangers, people we don't know, uh, but people, brothers and sisters who are in great needs, particularly persecuted people or people who are suffering in some way for the sake of the name. And so, and so you see, we could go running uh, happily into having people over to our house and, and again, important things, but if, if we're not paying attention to this thing, I think we're missing the, the primary point. I think Jesus means to communicate to us that you and I living here in the, the blessing of the United States and, and the, the wonder of West Michigan, that we have a responsibility to our brothers and sisters around the world. And, and we know that they exist and we know that they are in need. We cannot claim ignorance. So what are we going to do about that? Does that matter to us? I just shudder to think about standing there on the last day with, with a contemporary brother or sister of mine who uh, was being, you know, persecuted in Indonesia, and, and I did nothing, nothing for him or anyone like him in my whole life that was meaningful, significant, intentional, or sacrificial. And so, friends, I, 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 it seems to me that aid to the persecuted church how does that not flow immediately and directly from our text? So much so that, that it needs to become a part of the way we think about being a church. It's not just a nice token of, of our generosity that maybe it would occur to us from time to time, but that to be uh, someone, who, people who believe in Jesus Christ that, and, and that have a love then that flows from the, the, the heart of Christ, that we will care for those specifically who are being abused because of Christ. So when, when Paul uh, has his Damascus experience, do you remember what Jesus said to him? Paul, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? He didn't say them. He said me. Why are you persecuting me? Jesus identifies with his, with his persecuted saints in such a way that, that their persecution, their wounds against them are wounds against him. And in the same way, you see, ministry to them is ministry to Jesus. And so I, I think that we need to think really, really seriously about what are we going to do about that. Does this need to become a line item in our general fund? 
Is it going to be that important to us? Or maybe regular benevolent offerings that are specifically designated for the persecuted church? I have um, I've asked Adam Post, our head deacon, and uh, he has happily jumped into this and is going to be talking to his deacons, uh, fellow deacons about this at their next meeting and, and said, we'll be hearing back from them. That's exactly right. I think elders need to have a conversation about this. Uh, I think as a church, we simply, I don't know how in, in, in front of Hebrews chapter 13, we can just continue to say, yeah, we probably ought to do something and then fail to do something. So that, that's the first thing that just weighs on me. I don't know how. Uh, with all the blessings that we have and all the suffering that we know is going on in the world today and all the ability that we have to intervene and to help, and if we don't do it, I just, I cannot, uh, I cannot feel, I don't know what we're going to say to Jesus on the last day. And that just weighs heavy on my heart, and I, I hope it weighs on, you, on yours as well. But then, is that all we could do? Well, no, of course that's not all we can do. We've got opportunities to minister to needy brothers and sisters right here in the body of Christ. There are, there are, there are lonely people here at Harvest Church who would love an invitation to your home. There are visitors who don't know anyone would love to be invited over. There are, there, are, there are singles who would love to be asked to an outing or a picnic or a ball game. Um, there are elderly who would, just, who would love a visit, a single mom who would love some help, a widowed man who would love a cup of coffee, an alienated teenager, boy, uh, teenager who, who, who would really, really cherish a friend. That's, that's, that's here all the time. The socially awkward adult that we're just not quite sure how to engage with, interact with. And so we avoid. See, brotherly love, that means that we not only do better, it means that we intentionally seek that, those things out. I was just reading a book recently, uh, How to Be a Welcoming Church, and just said that the loneliest 10 minutes for a visitor to a church are, is usually the 10 minutes before the service, where they walk in and sort of wander around the foyer, and uh, maybe the person at the door greets them, hopefully, but after that, it's just sort of on, you're on your own until you make your way in your seat, and often you're sitting just by yourself, particularly for singles. Why not invite a single to sit with you? Just say, hey, you know, would you mind coming and, and join us? And then carry on that conversation afterward. There's, you know, college students when they're in town that we can, we can bless. Hey, friends, every Sunday, we get, we get opportunities to practice basic, really simple, basic love for one another, and it's particularly for those who are feeling lost or new or, or out of place or just hurting. And so I would, I would encourage you when, you, when you drive into the parking lot, have eyes open. And when you get out of your car, you see someone you don't know, don't put your head down and look at the pavement. It's doing just fine. Uh, reach out and, and make a friend. How you doing? And, and who cares if they've been here six months and you haven't, you haven't met them? Or who cares if you met them last week and completely forgot? It's okay. I've done it lots of times. It's okay. But can we just care for each other that way and care for, for, for people who are maybe feeling different and specifically keep an eye open in the foyer afterward for people just standing there alone? And let's maybe pay particular attention to people who are different, strangers, so different skin color, different economic class, different age group. Young people, love your fellowship, but maybe break up a little bit and go talk to some old people. You'd be surprised what they know. And maybe old people, go talk and reach out to some young people. And just bless them. You see, we don't have to be stuck in, in, in our familiar little zones. 
But the, the power of the gospel frees us. And you think, well, that's just little stuff. No, that matters, friends. Brotherly love matters. Jesus is trying to free you and me from our own natural self-disposition, uh, self-love, self-interest. And to give us eyes to see and care for people that he loves dearly, gave his life for. And so that's not, it's not a little thing in the least. Uh, we just encourage our hospitality team to take a sort of a look at how we're doing as a, as a church body. How do we actually do as a family when it comes to brotherly love? There's a, when I come here on Sunday afternoons, there's often one or two people in the foyer who've been here all afternoon. Could we do better than that? And care for people? If, if, if God is blessing us, one of the things that he's going to do for us, I believe, as a congregation is help us just be more aware of, of people who are in need and, and hopefully face our community with, with new eyes and, and care for people who are not like us. Love for strangers. And that would be for the glory of God and that would be for our joy as we, as we walk, friends, in those ways. But bottom line, you see, it's, it's what faith does. It's, it's what faith does. Let's not content ourselves on what we say we believe. Let's obey our Lord. Let's hear his voice. Let's follow him. And let's love. Amen. Oh, God in heaven, we are wonderfully admonished this morning by your word. I thank you so much for your grace. Where you, Lord, um, boldly intersect with our life and and call us to live for the kingdom of God and the glory of Jesus. And we're so busy about so many other things, careers and vacations and relationships, projects. And Jesus, you step into our world this morning and you call us to be serious and engaged about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And Lord, I pray that you would then be gracious to us, forgive us our sin. Lord, forgive us for the people that we've ignored or simply have not stretched to love, maybe starting in our own home, maybe starting in our marriage, our family. Lord, I pray that you would free us from our bondage uh, to fear to shame, to self, to idols, that the love of Jesus Christ would be more and more evident here for the glory of Jesus, that our, our faith would be evidenced in how we talk and, and how we reach out and how we, how we give. Lord, I pray particularly for the persecuted church. We have brothers and sisters today with, with names who are weeping because they've lost a loved one or someone's in prison. Pray for Andrew Brunson again. That you would, Lord, give him freedom. But there are so many, so many others. And I, Lord, I pray that you would help us as, uh, as the deacons are considering how they can lead us in this and the elders as well. That, Lord, uh, I pray for um, the hospitality team as they consider how can we show the, the wonder of God and the goodness of Jesus to us as we love each other. 
And Father, we pray that um, you would give us the grace uh, to learn these things in ever-deepening ways and, and the joy and the peace that will come from it and the obedience that pleases you. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.